You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In early August 1862, the Army of the Potomac, commanded by Major General George B. McClellan, was languishing in the oppressive heat and humidity at Harrison's Landing along the James River on Virginia's peninsula. The army had been encamped there for a month since the end of the Seven Days' Battles. And then on August 3rd, McClellan received an order from Washington that stunned and angered him. It read, quote, It is determined to withdraw your army from the peninsula. McClellan admitted that the message, quote, caused me the greatest pain I have ever experienced, end quote. He protested the order, but in vain. The War Department, really the Lincoln administration, was showing that it no longer had faith either in McClellan or his campaign on the peninsula. When Little Mac had set off on that campaign, he had boasted it would end the war. He had started the campaign with a larger-than-life martial reputation, the largest army in American history, and a siege train of over 100 guns to pound the rebel capital into submission. He faced an outnumbered foe, whose esteemed commander, Joseph E. Johnston, had been severely wounded in the campaign's first consequential battle. After that tragedy, the Confederate army was entrusted to a heretofore disappointing general, Robert E. Lee. Lee enjoyed the confidence of Confederate President Jefferson Davis, but his elevation to replace the wounded Joe Johnston generated little excitement throughout the Confederacy or among the soldiers of the rebel army. Lee had an admirable reputation in the pre-war U.S. Army, but since the outbreak of hostilities between the North and South, Lee's reputation had been tarnished by a failed campaign in western Virginia and then a futile tenure as commander of Confederate defenses along the South Atlantic coast. By June 25th, McClellan had pushed the Army of the Potomac to within a few miles of Richmond. The blue-clad soldiers could hear the tolling of the city's church bells. The fall of the rebel capital seemed inevitable. The end of the war seemed within sight. But now, just six weeks later, McClellan was being ordered to abandon the campaign as a failure. How, you may ask, had it come to this disappointing end after such a promising start? Well, it all began a year before, in the summer of 1861, only 100 days into the war. Welcome to episode number 126 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. 
Now that we've finished up the Shiloh story arc with this episode, as promised, we're going to head back east, and as you can tell from that introduction at the beginning of the show, we're not only going to head back to the war's eastern theater, but we're going to backtrack a bit and then work our way forward again. And that works well, not only from a storytelling standpoint, but it's also probably a good idea since it's been a good while since we spent any time back in the war's eastern theater. So let's go back to July 26, 1861. 34-year-old Major General George Britton McClellan arrives in Washington. It's just five days after the debacle at Bull Run. As McClellan rode down Pennsylvania Avenue in a carriage, he could see signs of demoralization and disorganization everywhere he looked, in the soldiers roaming the streets, in the officers filling the saloons, in the frightened civilians bracing for the worst. The Confederate victors of the battle at Manassas were now encamped at Centerville, just a stone's throw southwest of Washington, and many Northerners feared that the rebels were preparing an all-out assault on the nation's capital. The urgent summons from the president that McClellan had received at his field headquarters in northwestern Virginia had read, quote, "'Circumstances make your presence here necessary,' Come hither without delay. End quote. The morning after his arrival in Washington, the young general went to the White House to find out what the president had in mind for him. It was an assignment that might have shaken a less confident man. McClellan was to take command of all federal troops in and about Washington. He was to ensure the safety of the city and then forge a new army to march on Richmond and defeat the rebels. That afternoon, he made a quick tour of the camps on the outskirts of Washington, and he returned with a healthy respect for his new task. McClellan later wrote that he found no army to command, just, quote, a mere collection of regiments cowering on the banks of the Potomac, some perfectly raw, others dispirited by the recent defeat. The city was almost in condition to have been taken by a dash of a regiment of cavalry. Such critical times fairly cried out for a hero, and the new commander seemed perfectly cast in the role. McClellan was a handsome, charming man, and in his general's uniform, he radiated an unmistakable aura of dash and glamour. He wore a jaunty, French-style capy, was an excellent horseman, and rode a magnificent dark bay named Dan Webster. Though his soldiers referred to him as Little Mac, McClellan wasn't really short for that time. He was five feet eight inches tall. But he was built so sturdily, with broad shoulders and a massive chest measuring 45 inches around, that he appeared shorter than he was. One of McClellan's contemporaries noted that he displayed, quote, an indescribable air of success. As the man of the hour, with all Washington at his feet, McClellan plunged into his new assignment with supreme self-assurance. In a letter to his wife the day after his arrival, he confided, quote, By some strange operation of magic, I seem to have become the power of the land. I see already the main causes of our recent failure. I am sure I can remedy these, and am confident that I can lead these armies of men to victory once more. The new commander immediately got down to business. McClellan spent most of his time organizing, building up, and training the army. To oversee the countless tasks required of his command, he put together a large staff. Eventually, McClellan's staff numbered 65 officers. 
Then, seeking to coordinate the duties of those officers, McClellan created a post that was common among European armies, but new to the U.S. Army, Chief of Staff. The officer he named that post was his father-in-law, Randolph Marcy, who by now had risen to the rank of colonel. Of special importance to McClellan's methodical engineer's mind was the construction of fortifications around Washington. He immediately endorsed plans already underway for a series of 48 forts and redoubts to guard a 37-mile perimeter around the approaches to the city. While these new fortifications were taking shape, McClellan fretted constantly about the safety of the capital. Early in August, the Confederates under Joseph E. Johnston, an old comrade of McClellan's from the Mexican War, edged closer to Washington, occupying Fairfax Courthouse, about 15 miles west of the capital. McClellan, anticipating an attack at any time, wrote to his wife on August 8th, quote, I have scarcely slept one moment for the last three nights, knowing well that the enemy intends some movement, and fully recognizing our own weaknesses. McClellan not only worried about the proximity of Johnston's army, but also about its size, which he constantly exaggerated. He told his wife that, quote, the enemy have three to four times my force, end quote. In reality, Joe Johnston had fewer than 40,000 men available for duty during most of August, while the rapidly growing federal forces around Washington numbered nearly 70,000. By September, McClellan felt he could breathe somewhat easier. Discipline in the Army had been restored, and construction of the fortifications around Washington was well enough along that he deemed the capital safe from any immediate danger. Now he could devote his full attention to the most formidable of his tasks, forging the Army under his command into an instrument strong enough to take the offensive and to capture Richmond. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. McClellan's army was already new in name, having been christened the Army of the Potomac in August. The army was also largely new in composition. 
The three-month militia units, which had formed the bulk of the federal forces at Manassas, had gone home. They were replaced by new recruits, enlisting for three years in answer to President Lincoln's call in July for 500,000 volunteers. These fresh troops were pouring in as rapidly as the railroads could handle them. Recruited in regiments in their home states, they reached Washington at the rate of 10,000 men a week during August and September. The raw recruits were placed temporarily at the new encampments springing up on the outskirts of Washington. In these camps, the volunteers were introduced to soldierly discipline, and as Private Alfred Bellard of the 5th New Jersey reported in his diary, quote, "...initiated in the mysteries of keeping our heels on a line, toes out at an angle of 45 degrees, belly in, chest out, and such other positions as tend to make a full-fledged veteran out of a raw recruit." The troops were also taught marching movements, given weapons, and tutored in the manual of arms, and marched about in full accoutrements. After a few weeks of this basic training, most regiments moved across the Potomac to join the somewhat more seasoned units already encamped on the Virginia side of the river. There, McClellan shaped the organization of his new army. The men were drilled to maneuver in progressively larger formations. The ten companies of each infantry regiment learned to march together and then several regiments that formed a brigade were united in drill. Finally, divisions were assembled, each ordinarily consisting of three brigades of infantry, one regiment of cavalry, and four rep batteries of artillery. The customary strength of a division was 10,000 men, though in reality it was anywhere from 7,000 to 12,000. To command these new divisions, McClellan called on the services of experienced regular army officers, almost all of them West Pointers, and many of them old comrades of his from the pre-war army. But finding competent officers below the divisional level proved to be one of McClellan's most challenging problems. Many of the regimental commanders owed their rank to political influence. They had been appointed by the governor of their state, or in some cases elected by the men of their units, with little regard for military experience or competence. To weed out unfit officers, McClellan made extensive use of the new selection boards that Congress had authorized after the disaster at Bull Run. Many officers resigned rather than face examination by the regular Army officers who sat on the boards. Within eight months, 310 officers had either yielded their place or had been cashiered and sent home. Meanwhile, to command the dozens of brigades being organized by McClellan, the president was commissioning so many new brigadier generals that according to one Washington joke, a boy threw a stone at a troublesome dog on Pennsylvania Avenue and missed the mutt but hit three new brigadiers. In the Army of the Potomac that late summer and early fall of 1861, no one worked harder than the young general his troops called Little Mac or Our George. It wasn't uncommon for McClellan to spend 12 hours or more a day in the saddle, inspecting the sprawling but orderly encampments that now surrounded Washington on both sides of the Potomac. He wrote to his wife that he wanted, quote, to see as much as I can every day, and more than that, to let the men see me and gain confidence in me. McClellan was sure to be seen, since every visit from the commanding general of the army was an event. First came McClellan himself posting smoothly at a fast trot on Dan Webster. 
stretched behind the general, struggling to keep up, trotted a cavalry escort and members of McClellan's staff. McClellan's retinue included royalty, the Comte de Paris, pretender to the throne of France, and his brother, the Duc de Chartres, the two Frenchmen who had declined any rank above that of honorary captain were friendly and unassuming, known to their non-French-speaking comrades as Captain Perry and Captain Chatters. Their uncle, the Prince of Joinville, tagged along as an observer and occasionally depicted what he saw in splendid watercolors. McClellan had a love of ceremony, and he brought martial pomp to its fullest flower early that autumn in a series of full-dress reviews on the parade ground. At first, the ceremonies consisted of only a few thousand men, one brigade showing off its newly acquired skill at marching and maneuvering. But these were later eclipsed by grand divisional reviews. Americans had never seen such displays of martial grandeur. A host of distinguished visitors flocked to the parade ground, senators, cabinet members, society ladies with hoop skirts and parasols, sometimes even President Lincoln himself. But the center of attention was always McClellan. When the music of the regimental bands on the parade ground stopped, the charismatic young general would come galloping down the massed ranks on his great horse. As he swept by, the men of his army would cheer, and little Mac would acknowledge their enthusiasm with a gesture that endeared him to the men under his command. One of his staff officers explained how, quote, he went beyond the formal military salute and gave his cap a little twirl, which with his bow and smile seemed to carry a little of the personal good fellowship even to the humblest private soldier. If the cheer was repeated, he would turn in his saddle and repeat the salute, end quote. McClellan held his climactic parade and review at Bailey's Crossroads, Virginia, about seven miles from Washington. The colonel of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry wrote, quote, The field was a broad amphitheater, favorable at any part for a view of the whole, and the spectacle of a vast, organized host of 80,000 men in masses of divisions, with the artillery and cavalry of each division attached, and all its banners floating in the sunlight, was the grandest and most inspiring I ever beheld. General McClellan, with his staff, rode rapidly along the fronts of divisions, awakening the wildest enthusiasm as he passed. Then the army passed in review, and as the ground trembled under the steady tread of the endless columns of disciplined soldiers, and the air throbbed with the music of countless bands, the all-pervading feeling was an enthusiastic and ardent admiration for the man who had created the Army of the Potomac. In the realization of all observers, even the most experienced officers, the army was born that day. End quote. The blue clad soldiers' admiration and affection for McClellan was understandable. Private John W. Chase of the first Massachusetts Artillery, in a letter to his family, said quote, The boys are happy as clams at high water. The rank and file think he is just the man to lead us on to victory when he gets ready and not when Horace Greeley says to go. Horace Greeley was the excitable editor of the influential New York Tribune newspaper. People would not quickly forget how in the days before the disastrous battle at Manassas, Greeley had affixed to his paper's masthead the insistent slogan, Forward to Richmond. Exactly. But if the rank-and-file Union soldiers in the Army of the Potomac were, as Private Chase said, happy as clams with Little Mac, 
One officer who didn't share in the mass adulation was McClellan's immediate superior, 75-year-old General-in-Chief Winfield Scott. Almost from the moment of McClellan's arrival in Washington, the two men had rubbed each other the wrong way, and it didn't help that the younger man was transparently eager for Scott's job. Besides differences over policy issues, another bone of contention between McClellan and Scott was the danger, or lack thereof, posed by the Confederate forces in northern Virginia. McClellan continued to overestimate enemy strength, and his natural inclination to do so was reinforced by faulty intelligence reports from his Secret Service chief, Alan Pinkerton. Pinkerton was an energetic Scotsman who had founded one of the first American private detective agencies. Pinkerton had done important work for the Illinois Central Railroad when McClellan was an executive there in the late 1850s. After the start of the Civil War, when McClellan took command of the Department of the Ohio, Pinkerton organized an intelligence-gathering section for him, and then followed McClellan to Washington. During the war, Pinkerton would prove as adept at catching spies as he was at nabbing bank robbers before the war, but his intelligence estimates of Confederate strength were woefully inaccurate. For example, early in October, Pinkerton led McClellan to believe that the rebel army in front of Washington was, quote, not less than 150,000 strong, end quote, which was well over three times the actual number. Winfield Scott disagreed with McClellan's estimates of Confederate strength, which irritated the younger officer to no end. And as time went on, there were also more and more distressing personal conflicts between the two men, largely due to McClellan's deliberate efforts to snub Scott. McClellan circumvented his superior officer, bypassing proper channels, by dealing directly with the Secretary of War, various other administration officials, and President Lincoln. This neglect and disrespect infuriated Winfield Scott, and in despair, the hero of the Mexican War and the War of 1812 before that offered to retire, calling himself, quote, an encumbrance to the army as well as to myself, end quote. But the president refused to accept Scott's resignation, and so he reluctantly stayed on. Lincoln, for his part, was patient with the young general. The two men had gotten to know each other back before the war, when Lincoln served as a legal counsel for the Illinois Central. Now the president knew that McClellan was thinking big, for back in August, at Lincoln's request, McClellan had submitted a long memorandum setting forth his strategy for winning the war. The nub of it was McClellan's assertion that the Union could, quote, crush the rebellion at one blow, end quote, if he, McClellan, were given a free hand and given enough troops. McClellan wanted no fewer than 273,000 men for his Army of the Potomac before he felt comfortable taking the offensive. By early October, however, when he had about half that number on the Army's rolls, some newspapers and politicians had begun to clamor for an advance. The autumn weather was fine, and the Virginia roads leading south to Richmond were dry and hard. But McClellan remained determined to avoid the kind of premature advance that he felt had brought on the defeat at Manassas. On October 10th, McClellan told the President, I intend to be careful and do as well as possible. Don't let them hurry me, is all I ask. If Lincoln later recalled his reply, he must have regretted it, for he told McClellan, You shall have your own way in the matter, I assure you. 
That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Lincoln and His Generals by T. Harry Williams. This classic work is an account of Lincoln's long and frustrating search for a war-winning commander for the Union armies. The author not only provides an examination of Lincoln's search for that commander, but he also looks at Lincoln's transformation into a strategist in his own right. One word of caution, I guess, and that's that Williams really, really doesn't like McClellan. Um, But that perhaps isn't a bad thing. You can decide. So that's Lincoln and His Generals by T. Harry Williams. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we want to be sure to say thank you to Michael C. in Texas for his donation. And thanks to several new members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Kara, Harold, and John. Thanks, y'all. Your support means a lot. And that's about it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue setting the stage for McClellan's Peninsula Campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.